Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Van Damme loves Amsterdam, then join this group of four women handpicked by Beard himself and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. This time we've been reading Kafka on the Shore. And an interesting uh, thing that came up is one of the characters can speak with cats. And I was wondering, Marita, what animal, what creature would you converse with if you could? You know, I was thinking about this and my first impulse would be to say dogs because I have a dog who's always around. But I, I feel like the trash talk would be kind of unbearable. So actually we have um, a kestrel, which hunts in the fields that we have. And I would love to be able to chat with it and see what's going on in the neighborhood. Yeah, I often think if we could speak to our dogs, it would be an absolute bloody nightmare. Like, they'd just be like, give me food, give me food, give me food. Lincoln would be a mess. <laughs> it would be real, well, yeah, he's a shouty dog anyway. <laughs> run, run. Yeah. Bex, what about you? Hey, what creature are you conversing with? I'm picking a polar bear, uh, mainly because it's my favorite animal, but also because, like, they're pretty badass. And, yeah. like, I don't know, I'm just... I have like fun facts about polar bears, so I feel like I could, if I could have fun opinions about polar bears too from them directly, <laughs> that would work. You want to, you want to my fun facts? I just want to share a couple. Polar bears have black skin. Polar bears have clear hair, and polar bears are one of the only animals that, without being provoked, would eat a human. So Respect. there you go. <laughs> yeah. But Excellent. not you, if you could sweet but talk But not me, because I'd be talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> definitely locking my, I'm definitely locking my doors around a polar bear. You beat me to it. That's fair. I was just about to say, Andrea, would you would you want to speak to the deer? But you don't even, you just get out of there when you see deer, right? That window's down, the door's locked, and you're off. I'm out of there. <laughs> so who are you conversing with then? Well, you know what? This quite actually kind of sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole in my head, because maybe I'm taking, like, I'm thinking about this a little too much. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking, well, I'll talk to the the dog, the Falcor dog, and never-ending story. But he can already talk, right? He can already talk. And yeah, then, he can. Um, Andy, I'd like to know what Andy's going through because she's got a lot of trauma on her life. So I'd like to be able to talk to her. That's her cat for anybody yeah, listening. I'm not sure. <laughs> just we just assume everybody knows who Andy is. So that's <laughs> isn't she world famous by now? Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think I'll, I know that seems maybe that's a little boring, but it's like, well, no, okay, not. I would like to know what baby Yoda, what Grogu is actually like to be able to converse with him. You're just gonna have to wait some a few, maybe like a decade for that, probably a they're few gonna, hundred years. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna want the baby to remain cute for as long as possible. And I'm not a mother, but once they start talking, <laughs> oh no, it's the best, it's the absolute best. Yeah, but it's actually, I'm being cynical. <laughs> so me, I want to find, I want to converse specifically with the orcas because I think they're trying to galvanise and I could be their, their man on the land. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you need help? Are we, what are we protesting today? What boats can we knock out the water? That sort of thing. Yes, yes. That's my completely serious answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Bex, I'm hoping you'll have a synopsis for us. I do. I do indeed. It's a little bit shorter than the uh, Wizard of Oz one. 
Uh, Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami was originally published in Japanese in 2002. It was translated to English in 2005 and was considered one of the 10 best books of 2005 by the New York Times. It also won a World Fantasy Award in 2006. The book tells the stories of Kafka Tamara, a 15-year-old boy who runs away from home to escape what he has been told is his Oedipal curse, and Satoru Nakata, an elderly man with the ability to talk to cats. The chapters alternate between the perspectives of the two main characters with the odd chapters narrated by Kafka in the first person and the even chapters from Nakata's perspective, but in the third person, which fits because he also speaks about himself in the third person. The book incorporates a number of themes, including music as a communicative conduit, metaphysics, dreams, fate, the subconscious, and more. So I'm excited to hear what we're each going to be digging into today. Where in Ted Lasso did Kafka on the shore appear? This book appears in Season 3, Episode 9. And the title of this episode is partially in French, which I do not speak, so forgive my pronunciation. La Locker Room a Foal. <laughs> Basically, after Nate realizes that his guy's night with Rupert is not what he was hoping for, he leaves. Before he arrives at Jade's apartment, we see her sitting on her couch reading a book, Kafka on the Shore. This is the first and only time in the entire series where we see a female character actively reading a book. And yes, that's Shade. <laughs> Just in case you didn't pack up on it. Very clear. <laughs> I, I do have a couple trigger warnings. Um, most of them are for the book itself, but some of them we might be touching upon briefly. So the book does include uh, animal abuse, murder, incest, and rape. Uh, we might bring these topics up, but we're not going to go into most of them in depth. If we do, we'll set you another warning. Although Marita has informed me that she will be discussing Ted's father's suicide in her section. So just be ready for that. But if you watch the show, I bet you're ready for that. <laughs> okay, awesome. Marita. Kick us off. All right. Well, I think the first thing to bring up is the thing that probably there there are several uncomfortable things in this book, but the thing that probably sort of made us all the most squeamish. I feel like it took Ted's thank you and fuck you bit with his mom like too literally and and too far. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh God! <laughs> You're not wrong though. You're not wrong. <laughs> oh, that was special. That was very special. Okay. Well done. Well done. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to talk a bit about a paper titled On Wabi Sabi and the Aesthetics of Family Secrets, reading Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore. Uh, this is by Yari of Orgad in the journal um, called Culture and Psychology. And so what Orgad does is uses the aesthetic principles of Wabi Sabi, which is, I'm going to summarize and, and really condense this down. So if anyone wants to add context or just be horrified at my... Uh, lack of background in this, but it's kind of an embrace of impermanence and imperfection. And he uses these principles to frame what's going on with family secrets and what's going on with character in, in Kafka on the Shore. And the paper starts off and discusses the idea of family secrets as a way of hiding from imperfection. The person who has like shame and guilt about something is keeping a secret away from the family by not acknowledging them. It's sort of an ego-driven way of evading that shame and guilt. It also points out that the tendency to conceal or disclose information, like what gets concealed, what gets disclosed, is actually pretty culturally motivated. 
Uh, so points out that it's really important to consider the cultural context that we're talking about whenever we discuss sort of family secrets in this way. So there's really a couple of ideas that the author of the paper goes into. So in the first idea we want to talk about, we can think about this tolerance of imperfection allowing people to deal with shameful or guilt-inducing experiences in a healthier way than keeping secrets would. And so I'm going to quote from the paper uh, uh, right up front. I, I will say that, you know, I delve off into literature all the time. That's not my field. This is a lot of psychology. That's even less my field. So just bear with me. But quoting the paper, for example, the guilty, shameful secret holder coerces his inner perfect fantasy upon the imperfect, shameful reality. Thus, the subject becomes detached from reality as it is. In contrast, tolerance of imperfection acknowledges that reality is beyond that fantasy. Such tolerance maintains the subject-object gap and brings about a relational experience of a subject and its objects that enables mental life. In the above example, tolerance towards shameful experiences would dismiss their threat and relieve the narcissistic pressure upon the subject to be perfect. Furthermore, such tolerance may enable concealed experiences, reconceptualization, and a transformation of the subject's relation with them, thus transforming secrecy into a force that challenges the narcissistic personality to cope with reality. We kind of get that. That's a lot, but... um, It's, I, it's a lot, but the main idea here is, is that really what somebody is trying to do when they're keeping a family secret is hide from this guilt and shame in a way that is not consistent and connected with reality. And right. so if they can get past the guilt and shame, right, if they can have that tolerance for imperfection, it actually not only probably will help the people around them, but helps them because they can sort of rethink and transform their relationship with what they're guilty or ashamed about in a way that is healthier. So they can go back to reality. I think that's interesting with Ted too, because I think he, he does practice that with other people, but maybe not with himself. Oh yes. Yeah. And so the second idea from the paper that we're going to talk about, and this is largely more germane to Kafka's experiences in the novel we have this idea of learning to deal with family secrets in a way that embraces the gaps in our knowledge and treats them as imperfections and as such uses those as opportunities for growth. So quoting the paper again, this approach recognizes reality as a holistic complexity that contains imperfection as an inherent and integral element without interpreting it as a threat. Imperfection exists in many forms between them, the unknown part of reality. Therefore, in contrast with the wish to hide harmful or threatening information, given that the unknown is not categorized as a negative impairment, it's suggested that one may be strengthened and even secured through tolerance towards secrecy. In line with that conceptualization of the relation towards secrecy, Zen philosophy perceives nothingness as a component of reality that frees the mind by transgressing its limits of intellectualism and rationalism, the capacity to tolerate nothingness engenders a spirit of inquiry that ever broadens processes of meaning making. So what we're talking about here is someone who has a secret kept from them and learning to just sort of accept that and that nothingness and be kind of open to that and live with that as an imperfection is also another way of achieving personal growth. And the first thing that came to my mind when I read the discussion that said engenders a spirit of inquiry with regard to Ted is coping with the unknowable secrets behind his father's suicide, right? With his coping mechanism of that be curious, not judgmental strategy and approach to life, right? That is his engendered spirit of inquiry right there. But I want to take a step back and take these two ideas separately. First, the idea of accepting imperfection as a way to not need to keep secrets, and then move on to accepting the gaps that the secrets leave in our understanding as a way to achieve growth. 
In terms of secrets, Kafka on the Shore is absolutely full of them, right? Most of the characters in the book, with the exception of Nakata, are actively hiding something, with various degrees of pathology behind the non-disclosures. I would argue absolutely the most pathological is Kafka's father, who, when, you know, his mother left and took his adopted sister, he removed all pictures of his mother, leaving him with absolutely no information about who his mother is and no way to know who his mother and sister are. Right. And this is going to lead into that weird, is it incest? Is it not ambiguity in the book? And I was thinking about this because it is, I mean, it, it is probably the most upsetting part of the book and there are several upsetting things, but thinking about it from Kafka's point of view, any woman of a certain age could be his mother and any woman of another certain age could be his sister. And so right. he's growing up in this situation where either everyone is taboo or no one is right because he has no way of knowing and that's an interesting way that murakami has set that up uh miss sayeki is clearly also full of secrets and she's ambiguous in answering some pretty direct and like pretty important questions right and kafka himself is secretive with most people about what he's doing there but his disclosures when he actually does tell people what he's doing his disclosures to keep people drive the narrative and allow for his growth the narrative doesn't move along without that mm-hmm and it's interesting. Um, so Oshima has what might be considered a secret, but it isn't presented in the book as not sharing information because of shame, right? Rather, it's just not disclosing things people don't fucking need to know. Exactly. And and if for anything, for safety. Uh, yes, agreed. But yeah. it's also a great illustration of disclosure and non-disclosure often being culturally driven, right? There are always some things that are so shameful, I could imagine people keeping secrets, but some people want to keep some stuff to themselves and what it's safe or appropriate to share is going to vary based on culture. I don't mean culture to culture just geographically, but I mean as as we proceed through time, right? Mm-hmm. And I would also say like Nakata in the same vein doesn't disclose some crucial information, you know, like that whole I can talk to cat things to most people, but it's not shameful secrets for him either. It's more just a self-protective mechanism because he doesn't want people to sort of intervene or get weird thoughts about him. He knows people won't believe him. He knows that they'll just think he's even more other <laughs> than they already did, right? But it's another circumstance and in parallel to Kafka's narrative where his sharing of information drives the narrative forward. When he chooses to disclose things, it does drive the narrative forward. And so in this vein, Ted Lasso is full of people with secrets that when those people embrace the imperfection that's implied or even feared, like they fear other people's perception that it's an imperfection, it allows the character re to recontextualize things in a way that allows for personal growth, right? We've got Rebecca keeping the secret about her father's infidelity, which was absolutely unnecessary for her to keep, right? Her mom knew all along, but that was affecting her ability to sort of move forward with her own life and affecting her own relationships. I would call it an Isaac fit. Would they fit into this as well then? Because well, my next example was going to be Colin's closeted identity, not because it's an imperfection, but because of his fear of how people will perceive it. Yeah, that's what I was And And his say. being able to get past that um, and, and move past worrying that Isaac's going to see it as an imperfection, right? Worried about Isaac's response allows them both to grow and their friendship to grow. Absolutely, right? yeah. Especially with the context of Jade, because we're looking at her um, largely through her relationship with Nate. Nate's dad's shameful secret is that he did not know how to parent a genius. And as a result, he was a really harsh and horrible dad, right? And once he's gotten past the point 
where he can discuss with Nate that he just didn't know what he was doing as a dad. It opens up all sorts of growth for their relationship, just accepting that imperfection. And I think for a lot of us, and we've had discussions like this before, just accepting the imperfection in our parents allows us a lot of growth as as an adult. Good, good man, but a bad wizard. That's right. That's right. And I mean, Ted's got some secrets, right? He doesn't tell people about what happened to his dad. And that's not the sort of thing you just gush out to anyone. But it took forever for him to disclose it to to a therapist, right? That's a, a guilt and a shame all rolled into one that he's got bottled up. I would also argue that lying, and especially lying to yourself, is just an insidious form of keeping secrets. And the way Ted lies to himself about how everything is is okay um, is another form of Ted keeping a secret basically from himself. Yeah. I think that's the hardest secret to to confront too, right? Because when it involves another individual, there's like that gateway. But when you have to do it with yourself and admit that secret to yourself, (laughs) it adds another, oddly, another layer of complexity that I don't think is the same when you're talking about a secret from another individual. Oh, agreed. It's a lot to grapple with because it's all taking place internally. And to some extent, well, there's a limit to how much you can bullshit yourself usually. So having considered that, um, it's worth moving on to the the second idea presented in this paper of embracing ambiguity and accepting secrets we won't know, or even other imperfections in a way that allows for personal growth. So Kafka in the Shore is a novel that it's absolutely saturated with ambiguity, right? Kafka has this shattered identity he has to reconstruct, but he ends up needing to do that with an embrace of the fact there are secrets he won't ever know. The motivations of his father, what was actually happening with Miss Saiki, right? It's, there's so much he's never going to know and he still has to find a way to reconstruct what's going on. And it's interesting because the imagery of his father's most favorite, famous work, which is discussed in the father's obituary is labyrinth themed, right? And the, the paper I'm discussing points out that labyrinths can be either limiting if you get trapped or liberating if you find your way out. So Kafka really hates that he feels his father has stuck him with a very specific destiny. His ability to work free of that and just embrace that he doesn't know the path he needs to take forward, but he needs to move forward anyway, uh, is is a significant sort of passage from childhood to adulthood of his, I think, as the book progresses. In terms of Miss Saeki, when they're in the in-between, the purgatory of worlds, she asks him to go back to the real world so that he can remember her, which is really interesting because despite her having constantly been writing what we find out is an autobiography, she has it burned, right? Burned to a crisp. There is nothing nothing left of her own memories. So the information in it, her recounting of who she is, is absolutely unknowable. So she wants to be remembered, but the construction of that is going to have to be Kafka embracing all of the unknowable gaps and filling them in himself, right? His memories are so limited and incomplete, but he's going to have to sort of embrace that ambiguity and move forward anyway. So ultimately, Kafka can't lean on familial knowledge to reconstruct his identity. He has to just embrace the ambiguous, embrace that there are secrets there and gaps and move forward anyway. And I think that's really interesting in in the structure of the novel that it, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things heavily implied, but there's not a lot of things that are absolutely certain, even what's a dream and what's reality in the novel. And it's an interesting construction. Yeah. And I think the switching between narrators adds to that as well, because there's also this degree of like asking how are they connected is what's happening 
is it happening at the same time? Is it happening in the same place? Like, and, and the unknowing even for the reader is a part of that journey, I think. And how reliable is the narration? I mean, that's, that's another important thing here, especially with Kafka having his, you know, you can see Nakata as a sort of parallel to him, two sides of the same character, but then he also has a boy named Crow, right? So he's got these, this other duality going on as well. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think that also ties back into the the point of view that we get from each character's chapters as well. Right. First person narrators already going to be by default slightly less reliable because we're getting their perspective on the situation. Agreed. And Nakata is really interesting because it's not first person narration with him. But even when he talks about himself within the story, he doesn't he doesn't use I pronouns. Right. He uses his name to refer to himself and that distances it even more. Mm -hmm. That is interesting there. So we've got that in the book. And then within Ted Lasso, there are some elements of people coming to terms with and growing from these secrets they'll never know the truth about, just learning to accept that there are secrets they'll never know. I mean, to some extent, even Ted's mom's circuitous way of coming to England and being in the country for several days before she just sort of pops in, right? There's there's something mysterious going on there. <laughs> and, and since this is audio, not video, I will point out the cringing, infuriated gestures that some of my co-hosts have made. <laughs> it me. <laughs> I just I just can't imagine that scenario. I would be so like, are you serious right now? <laughs> well, and he was, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, even in his Ted way, the, the struggle to be cheerful in, in those scenes is is absolutely amazing. Even broader sense, right? Ted dealing with what happened with his father, because anytime you have a suicide, there is inherently the shame and guilt and any death can have some of that inherent, but when someone commits suicide, the the immediate impulse for most people, I think, is to consider what they could have done differently, what they needed to know, what was going on with that in a way that it's just unknowable. Even with a note, right, you don't know what's going on. You just have that incomplete and probably unreliable narration. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ted getting past that and I say that to the extent you ever really get past something like that, but right, Ted growing through that experience and and learning to sort of reintegrate back into his life requires him just making peace with that unknowable secret, with that ambiguity. And we do have a lot of embracing of imperfection and ambiguity in this show. And the reason I was drawn to this paper uh, is the mention of wabi-sabi. So kintsugi is the mending of something broken, particularly pottery with gold, right, to sort of accentuate the imperfection and draw attention to the beauty of it. So that's really in line with wabi-sabi principles, right? You you accentuate that imperfection. And we see that when Nate mends the belief sign in the last episode, right? It's what made me key on in this paper in the first place, is we have that belief sign that's put back together. It's been torn, torn apart, brought back together, and then mended in a way that accentuates those tears instead of trying to minimize them. And that ties back also to Rebecca's visit with Tish, no? Didn't she use a bowl like that? Yes, yes, I believe she did. Yes. Um, so that is in there too. But we have all sorts of like imperfection, especially near the end, where people just make peace with that and can still celebrate things despite their imperfection. You know, Ted had the stated goal of winning the whole fucking thing, right? The entire three seasons of plot arc are building up to it, but he doesn't, right? He gets very, very close at the end and then they win the game, but because of the way the league table structured, they don't win the overall league. It's not a championship. It's a, it's a league table. So he falls short, but it's still something to be celebrated. He is still happy and everyone is still 
happy with that imperfect result. And Ted has an imperfect relationship with his immediate family, with Michelle, wherever that relationship is, and with Henry. Um, but he can still embrace that as as his familial relationship and still find it satisfying. And something I also thought was interesting, because the show does have, especially in that last montage, it has a lot of really satisfying bits in the end. But it is just by structure asking us to tolerate and even embrace the ambiguity of some of the things at the end, right? Oh, I we love don't that. <laughs> get a solid sense of what's going on with Ted and Michelle back in Kansas. We know they're on friendly terms. We know he's coaching Henry in soccer, but it has led people to speculate whether or not they get back together, I, especially with Ted staying at their house right at the end. I think that's deliberately ambiguous, much like the entire novel of Kafka on the shore was deliberately ambiguous. Right? We don't have resolution with Keely, Roy, and Jamie. Uh, they choose through this the show, and particularly in season three, to leave some critical moments off screen. We don't see Colin coming out, right? We can guess that, but we don't know what happened in the conversation with Bex, Rebecca, and Miss Cakes. We don't know the details. Again, we can guess, but we don't know exactly what happened, why Nate left West Ham, right? So there's all this ambiguity. Um, I, when I talked about Johnny Tremaine, I talked about sort of the melancholy response that comes when we get narrative arcs that don't go where we thought they would and how our brain wants to fill in those gaps. And this is kind of along the same way. This is sort of a melancholy response, not necessarily in the terms of sad, but just our brain experiences it as kind of a loss because we don't have those answers. But if we can embrace that ambiguity, um, there's all sorts of things we can do with it. it. It leaves us open to sort of creative possibilities. What struck me so much about, I think, some of the negativity about the end of season three was that, was like, it's right there for you. Like, just, you know what I mean? Like, you can make your own choose your own adventure with the end of Ted yeah like what you think happened and it's all there I feel like any any of the any of the theories that I have heard about who was going to end up with who and where everything was going to go I feel like it was all there yeah I, I think that that is all there I would also say that I think folks who were frustrated with the end of season three would probably just throw Kafka on the shore against the wall like several hundred times because <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, so we mentioned in the triggers the, the theme of incest, but we never actually have it confirmed. Right. Right. It's, and it's, that's it's, that, that's up to you. Like, so when I read it, I'm like, nope, that was not his mother. The end, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but it it never tells us that. But that's up for me to, like, fill in that gap to make it my a story that works for me, I guess, yeah. an imperfect right. story that works for me. I was just going to say she's just a 50-year-old woman with a 15-year-old kid, which was also really Yeah, no, there's issues with that, too. But she doesn't even confirm it for Kafka, right? So she says, oh, I think you know the answer already. That's yes. <laughs> that is not an answer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think um, I, I think yours made a lot of sense, Marita. And I think it's, um, you kind of hit the nail on the head of why I think maybe I did struggle with finding something in this book was that there is a lot of ambiguity and there is a lot of like, yeah, like I could take, I don't know exactly how to explain this and this may not make sense either, but let me know. Like, even when I was going through my section, putting it together, I had all these little pieces, but none of them like cohesively fit together as this perfect, like, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened. It was like, oh, well, this was said. And, and then this was said over here. And like, 
there are all these like there's all these kind of these pieces that I'm just kind of pulling randomly I feel like into well, this thing that you know right good of course because it has the the whole novel is structured and Bex is going to talk about narrative structure too but it's the yeah. fragmented quasi-reality in this liminal space between conscious and subconscious like what's a dream and what's not and so things don't things aren't linear in the book even though the the narrative sort of is yes if that makes sense yeah Thanks to Bohemian Sis for sending us in comments on Kafka on the Shore and we'll be exploring these in the breaks. Bohemian Sis says, In Kafka on the Shore, nothing is as it seems. And the same can be said for Jade, our Ted Lasso reader who chose Kafka on the Shore. In Season 1, Episode 8, we learn one of the main themes in Ted Lasso is to always be curious, not judgmental. And yet a mere eight episodes later, when I first saw Jade, I forgot all about curiosity and judged her as being cruel to Nate with her relentless unsmiling face and other odd mannerisms. But I realised that my initial misjudgment was shameful and unfair, so immediately replaced it with the curiosity I'm striving for here in this Ted Lasso life lesson. Looking at her through different lenses and seeing her open up and smile with Nate has been one of my favourite arcs for both of them. They really do complement each other perfectly. The emotional swings from laughter to tears in Ted Lasso, and for me personally from dislike to love for Jade, is a very real counterpart to the emotional swings from tears to laughter throughout Kafka on the Shore. Now, back to the podcast. Okay, so is that you, Marita? So we're oh, going I to am Bex so Bex, done. Right? Just, I, I should have been done after that joke, honestly. <laughs> that <laughs> no. was my sum, my sum total contribution to the discussion. That was um, incorrect. <laughs> quality work. And I'm not just talking about the joke, which was also extremely good. Um, Bex, you got what you got for us. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Nate um, and dealing with his trauma. So... Jade is the person reading this book, right? And really, with few exceptions, her interactions in the show are almost all with Nate, you know? So I thought a lot about Nate while I was reading this book, and it's clearly not a one-for-one parallel. But looking back, I thought mostly about Nate when reading the chapters from Kafka's perspective. I think that fits. But I wasn't really sure where to go with it, so I started poking around. And I don't often do articles for my section because, well, my job involves reading lots of it's, articles. It's like work. <laughs> yeah, and so sometimes I just need a break and I'm like, let me just do this like off the top of my head. But at the same time, sometimes someone else has said what you're thinking in a way that you couldn't necessarily immediately articulate. So that's what this article helped me with. And I'm going to be referencing a 2016 article by Virginia Young called Timeless and Timelessness, a study of narrative structure in Murakami Haruki's Kafka on the Shore. She, of course, based on the title, focuses on the concept of time in the novel. But some of the things she's saying about relationships and the learning process of the journey really resonated with me when it came to my thoughts on Nate. So I'm going to start out with a quote that reminded me of Nate right away. It's spoken by Oshima, the circulation librarian in the small town where Kafka finds himself after running away. He tells Kafka, individual errors in judgment can usually be corrected. As long as you have the courage to admit mistakes, things can be turned around. And I I loved that 
like immediately. I was like, nope, got to write it down. I didn't have a pen with me. I just had my phone. So I opened up my my notes app <laughs> and dropped it in. Kafka needs to hear this, right? This is a lesson on narrow-minded and intolerant people. Noshima is a trans man and is recounting the discrimination he's faced during his life. But this message is a lot broader, right? Everyone makes mistakes and recognizing them is the first step. I mean, this is so Nate, right? <laughs> right. Throughout season three, we see Nate come around to this idea, though. He realizes that he's the one who messed up, that it was in large part his own mistake, but it can be turned around because he has taken that first step of acknowledging that he messed up. He's taking responsibility for his actions, and I think that's that's key in, in this evolution. Uh, Jung discusses this in her article, stating that the theme of responsibility shows that this novel does not merely depict the human being as a passive agent on which capricious fate exerts its force. It actively inquires into the interaction between the predetermined and the self-determinable aspects of humanity. Aside from the theme of responsibility, the issue of fate and freedom is closely connected to the theme of recovery and growth in the novel. This makes me think of Nate here, right? When Nate recognizes that his blow up with Ted was not inevitable, but that he himself played a role in it, he can make changes. It was not some predetermined thing or fate, but a situation based on action and reaction. So we're able to see the early steps of recovery and growth in the relationship between the two. But to get here, I think Nate has to ask himself some serious questions about how he got to this place with Ted. And I think the answers can be found in his relationship with his own father, right? <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot of connections there. What Nate got from Ted was something he could never seem to get from his own father. Trust, encouragement, and support. Nate's relationship with his father is one that brought him a lot of pain. Like when we see Nate playing the violin, right, in season three, and he and his father finally have an adult conversation, <laughs> you know, not just a reprimanding father, we see that this is a deep-seated trauma. Kafka's relationship with his own father is also strained, and this is the catalyst for his running away. As Jung explains in her article, the suffering and pain that Kafka has gone through have brought him to despair. Yet from desperation, Kafka moves on to deep reflection. Alone in the desolate forest, it has become possible for him to start a dialogue with himself with an acquiescent mind. So this is the, the same journey, you know, with the, the dark forest, if you will, right? That, that Nate must go on. So literally both, you know, in Kafka, we do literally have this dark forest. And Ted mentions that in season two, which is a big part of Nate's journey. Both characters question their own self-worth in the face of their relationships with their parents. So at one point in the novel, Kafka asks himself, do people start wars out of anger or fear? Or are anger and fear just two aspects of the same spirit? Again, this had Nate written all over it. <laughs> to me, this this is an excellent question, right? Like, just in general, when we think about Nate, the answer seems obvious. I mean, to me anyway. They are absolutely two aspects of the same spirit. Nate is afraid, so he gets angry. Nate is angry, and therefore he is afraid. Uh, this could end up a situation where he gets stuck, 
But instead, with the help of Jade, and I'll get back to that, he is able to escape this cycle. Okay, so this is my my slight detour about Jade. I don't see Jade as a character only created to redeem Nate, because I'm not a big fan of those types of characters. Yeah, agreed. But I think she honestly actively didn't do anything about this particular situation. She, and, and that inaction was really the action, right? She did provide a safe space for Nate. You know, he felt comfortable with her. But also, like, her directness and her ability to call him out on his bullshit, like, without actually seeming to do it. She's just like, oh, that's weird. Huh. Why would you do that? Right? <laughs> like, this this ability that she had sort of gave him the unintentional push that he needed. At least that's how I read it. I don't know if anyone else saw that with Jane. I agree. And I don't think it's just her seeing through Nate's bullshit. But in the same way where at the gala... Ted tells Rebecca that she's not the only one who can see Rupert for who he really is, right? When Nate is starting to have suspicions about Jade and then Jade meets Rupert, like, what does she say? It's beneficial to meet you? I mean, there's all sorts of things that are good for you that aren't the same as being pleasant, right? It, it's sort of like, oh, I've just learned a lot having met you. Yes. But but her, I think, tepid at best response to Rupert, even without deliberately shoving Nate in a certain direction, definitely helps him see what's right in front of him mm -hmm. yeah he it plants a seed right and unlike ted who puts on a happy face jade just is and and i really respect that about her her favorite jadeism is when he says i'm an idiot and she's like yeah sometimes <laughs> exactly <laughs> Go, he needs that person <laughs> yeah i was gonna say this i i really feel like we missed out for not seeing jade and ted meet I don't know why, like, I, like not that I think something crazy was going to happen, but I just would love to see the two of them interact in that same way. Yeah, yeah I would yep. be cute she as anything. Use him so much, you know. He wouldn't know what to do with her. <laughs> Maybe in the spinoff, we'll see her visiting Kansas with Nate. That yeah. would be a... There we go. There we go. <laughs> Headcanon accepted. I want to move on to talk about the boy named Crow, and Marita, you brought this up very briefly. And, and I forget, I if this was in Jung's article or just something else I came across when I was poking around for, for ideas, but apparently Kafka means crow in Czech. It does. Yes. And I mean, Murakami was Japanese. So like, but that doesn't, I mean, I'm not like Latino, but I might put some Spanish in something that I write or play with plays on words in another language. But I think there's definitely something here. And what I mean by this is that Kafka and the boy named Crow are one in the same, right? If I mean, I think we all picked up on that, but I just want to want to lay it out for everyone in case you haven't read it and are just following along. But Crow is the tougher version that Kafka wishes he could be. He appears periodically throughout the novel, but in the end, he comes back to discuss Kafka's abandonment by his mother with the protagonist. And so this, the boy named Crow says, you are hurt badly and those scars will be with you forever. I feel sorry for you. I really do. But think of it like this. It's not too late to recover. You're young. You're tough. You're adaptable. You can patch up your wounds, lift up your head and move on. 
Uh, now, Nate might not have a boy named Crow, but he does have many people around him who try to lift him up and support him. I mean, I mentioned Jade, but also his mother, his sister, the boys from the team when they come find him at Taste of Athens. And even Beard eventually is sort of that boy named Crow to Nate. Well, even the incredibly warm and fuzzy Roy, right, who acknowledges that Nate is good at the things that he is not. Um which yes. to have someone like Roy Kent telling Nate that he's good at something is uh, quite the boost. But does does he actually tell Nate that or does he just say that about Nate? That's a good question. Maybe I remember him talking to, to Beard and Ted about that. But, you know, Roy Kent is a whole other issue. <laughs> Reasonable. All right. So Kafka on the Shore deals with trauma and recovery. So does Ted Lasso. Each person's trauma and their journey to dealing with it will differ, but the parallels between Nate and Kafka are strong in terms of their feelings of abandonment. For Nate, this would be Ted, and for Kafka, his mother. And low self-worth. For both characters, this stems from their fathers. Jung explains, Kafka's strong hatred of his father suggests that he has been ill-treated. It is apparent that Kafka was spiritually abused by his father through the reiteration of the Edible prophecy. Edible, not edible. <laughs> That reminds me of community when Britta is takes up psychology and starts referring to everybody as the edible the edible complex. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. That's really funny. Okay. Nate's situation is different here. There is no edible prophecy, of course. Thank you. I appreciate that, Ted Lasso writers. We did not <laughs> need that. <laughs> but the same spiritual abuse is apparent in in all aspects of Nate's life, I think. Jung goes on to say, the story conveys a message that there is a redemptive value in pain and suffering. Kafka's story shows that even for the deeply hurt, salvation and growth are possible by coming to terms with one's past experience with an empathetic, forgiving heart. And that's what I see as sort of the main takeaway for Nate. But I mean, honestly, not just for Nate, like many of the other characters as well, like Ted for sure, but also Rebecca, right? She she had to go through pain and suffering and there was redemption there beard um whether we're talking about his past before he before the show uh or even some of his journey within the show i would say roy jamie like all of these characters kind of go through this pain and suffering in order to come out with uh, more empathy for those around them Let's pause for another comment from Bohemian Sis. They say, I need to emphasise that throughout the series in every episode, we see Coach Beard with a book, either in his hands or laying on his desk. But in this particular episode, Season 3, Episode 9, La Locker Room I Fall, the only book shown is being read by a previous outlier character, Jade, who is now Nate Shelley's girlfriend. The choice to place this book in this season with this character is so precise and significant. Both are stories with many characters, including animals and Kafka on the shore, whose lives run parallel with and in juxtaposition to each other all over the place, and mostly, especially, in this final season of Ted Lasso. Now back to the podcast. Andrea? Yes. I just shouted your name at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I've been looking forward to this, Andrea. Let's <laughs> dive in. So, you know, I enjoyed the story, although there were definitely a few odd moments I struggled to get past. There was the incest, the whole conversation in the library with the pseudo-feminists, the cat murder. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I struggled with this book, but I really enjoyed it. And I think I did really love how everything kind of came together in the end. Like, like, right, like there are all these stories and you're like, what do these have to do with each other? Like, you're just kind of going through it a little bit confused, but intrigued. And then, and then it just all starts to come together and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) It's giving Amsterdam episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, I wasn't expecting that. I really enjoyed it. Um, I also very much appreciated the love of books expressed. Mm. And I didn't realize that when I started reading the book that I would find my life's goal within it. But that sounds so good. That place, right? Like we could all just run away from home journey to a far off town and live in the corner of a small library. I love it. We're coming with you. Hello. I'm in the corner of a small library. Yeah. (laughs) You've got a, you've got a cat to take with you too. So you can keep her safe. (laughs) I also loved one of the book quotes that I really liked was, I think he was, I think he said this when he went to the library Uh, When I open them, most of the books have a smell of an earlier time leaking out between the pages, a special odor of the knowledge and emotions that for ages have been calmly resting between the covers. It's beautiful. Yeah. Books. I want to just kind of also actually when he finds, so he finds that home in the small library. And then like when he was describing the job to him, it was just like, he had to like get up and like water the plants and dust and that was it. I'm like, wait, what? I, like <laughs> I get that job. I've worked in a library before. There's <laughs> way more it. to that. Even when I was I was 16 when I worked in a library and there was more to it. <laughs> so he's got it easy. He's living Mary's um, unmarried dream and from the um, Oh yeah, it's a wonderful oh, life. It's a wonderful that's life. Right. Yeah, that's what he's living. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was just like, yeah, the only reason she was upset in that is she left the library and she had to talk to the public. Yes. (laughs) Well, so many people have said that like over the years, I've talked to people who are in the book world and they're, you know, and there's like this idea that you can just read all day and there's really no job in books and, you know, in any, anywhere where that is, yes, you can read books, but not what you want to read. You're going to write like you're going to be reading a whole bunch of stuff you don't want to read. So it's just kind of funny that he actually <laughs> got that job. <laughs> it's very, very relatable. You know, uh, worked in a children's library for two years, worked in a bookstore for 18 years. Yeah, Definitely could no... not just read whenever I want. <laughs> no. Although there is retirement right now. My mom is absolutely crushing the um, local library summer reading challenge because she reads four or five hours a day nice. <laughs> Log her time she gets raffle tickets she's gonna win something uh that my whole life was based off of that like when i was little pizza hut used to say you read the books you you know i can't remember how many books you had to read and you got a free pizza i mean come oh, the on. mini personal pizza yeah oh that was the reward <laughs> of the summer that was the inspiration of my whole life like oh i just gotta read books i get pizza i was there Um, Anyway, so (laughs) back to the point. (laughs) So none of the characters really spoke to me as a direct comparison uh, to any of the Lasso characters. But as I reviewed kind of like all the bookmarks and stuff that I had taken was that I realized there were a lot of passages that made me think about both Ted and Nate's journeys. 
um, how they may have felt lost, pulled in different directions, suffered panic attacks, all this kind of stuff. And so I kind of started to go down that route of like, there was one I would, I would read something and it would make me think of either Ted or Nate. And I would just kind of bookmark it really quick on my reader. And then when I went back and read that, I started realizing that they kind of reminded me of both. Yeah. So kind of, I, I basically kind of started to go through the three seasons of Ted Lasso, attach the quotes to them, and then kind of talk about how I see both of them in there in the same kind of stage of their journeys. Not that Ted and Nate are direct comparison to each other by any stretch of the imagination, but like, you know, I think in season one, they felt they both making choices in their lives that they felt like they had to make to make someone else proud or happy or something else. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think Nate, I don't believe that Nate had that job to impress his dad, but we definitely saw that thing about him that everything he did, he tried to impress his dad with. Right. And so maybe there was something about like, oh, I'm working for, you know, Richmond, even though he was just the kit man. I definitely think he felt, I definitely feel that Nate was meandering at that point in his life. It was in the worst place of his life in season one. You know, he was kind of wandering around with no direction, trapped by his family. I think, you know, feel like he, he didn't even know what he was doing anything for. So both of them were kind of going through some kind of motions at the time, like covering up, not really taking the issues head on that were going on with them. You know, Ted was in his most denial stage. He had that like right when he first got to Richmond and he, you know, kind of showed that like tremor in his hand, like that he was, he was, it was there under the surface and he was just kind of patting it all down. You know, Ted was kind of free falling at the moment. And, you know, I think, I think one thing that happened in season one is Ted had this projects to focus on. He had Nate to focus on. He had the team and he could kind of avoid focusing on himself. And so the quotes in the book that I feel that made me think about all that were, no matter how far you run, distance might not solve anything. Sometimes fate is like a small sandstorm that keeps changing directions. You change directions, but the sandstorm chases you. You turn again, but the storm adjusts. So season two, they're both struggling here, right? They're both on their own. They're struggling on their own. They're struggling with each other. They're struggling with everyone around them. They're lashing. They're both lashing out the wrong person. They're spiral. They're in that storm now, and they're spiraling. You know, Ted was unable to be supportive to anyone around him. He was fighting himself. Nate was putting all of his fate and everything into Ted. He held Ted responsible for everything, which was unfair. He, you know, he definitely was going through stuff with his dad and was, you know, able to even deal with any of that. And so, right, the storm is in you. Something inside you is one of my quotes. Then once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure, in fact, whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain, when you come out of the storm, you won't be able to be, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what the storms are all about. Your heart is like a great river after a long spell of rain spilling over its banks. Every time you see a flood like that on the news, you tell yourself, that's it, that's my heart. And then season three, Right. I think that's when we actually actually started to see both of them having the same kind of panic attack things. You know, they both kind of come back around towards the end of season three. They both had a moment of decision. The moment that everything kind of came to a head for them, you know, um, Ted's hallucination night, (laughs) his supposed mushroom hallucination night, you know, when he was panicking about Henry being a bully and then he started to kind of let everything take over, but he kind of breathed through it and he understood and gave, you know, he kind of understood and gave that team gave the team that incredible speech, you know, it was a turning point for him and, you know, Nate kind of quitting and he went to bed for a few days and he turned himself around out of that too. 
And so the quotes from the book that made me think about that were, I'm not trying to imply I can keep up this silent, isolated facade all the time. Sometimes the wall I erected around me comes crumbling down. Sometimes before I even realize what's going on there, I am naked and defenseless and totally confused. All of a sudden, the air feels thin and something heavy bearing down on my chest. Am I doing the right thing? The thought makes me feel helpless, isolated. I felt a contradiction in you. You're seeking something, but at the same time, running away from all your worth. In everybody's life, there's a point of no return. And in a very few cases, a point where you can't go forward anymore. And when we reach that point, all we can do is quietly accept that fact. That's how we survive. I think... Wow, especially the the season three quotes, because I think the the similarities between Ted and Nate are not so obvious in the first two seasons because they're not running in conjunction with one another. Like they don't do cut scenes from one to the next, at least not that I remember off the top of my head. But in season three, there's a lot more of that, you know, watching Nate not just have a panic attack, but have it at the press conference, which is something that we have seen from Ted. Yeah. Right? Um, that like disheveled, I've been in bed for three days, or at least I feel like I have been look that we saw with Ted uh, when he was signing the divorce papers and, and all of that and, and drawing connections to Nate and his experience because Nate basically just went through a breakup, right? Two back-to-back, two back-to-back breakups, you know, maybe, I mean, yay, we're glad he broke up with Rupert, but but still there is an emotional toll, whether you're the one who initiates it, whether it was done on, and again, uh, as Marita mentioned, we don't know for sure, I think it was Marita, anyway, someone mentioned that we don't know for sure what happened in that scene between, like, that conversation between Nate and Rupert. Did he yeah. just text him? Did he call him? Did he show up in person or did he just ghost him? Like it could be any of those things. Right. But that matters less than how he reacts to, to that. And it's just that sort of like, let me hide away for yeah. as long as possible. And then when I do come out, let me tr- like turn to the couple people that I trust, namely, you know, his mother, and and then he ends up getting a conversation with his father, but that sort of wasn't expected. So I think that's that's yeah. interesting as well. And I and I and I think too, right, like Nate almost kind of realizing that right, like he he when he was doing the kit man, when he was the kit man in season one, in some ways that was the happiest time he had. He felt like he was doing something. He felt like he was helping people. But he also felt recognized in season one, which he hadn't felt prior to that, right? Like pre-Ted Lasso, uh, he was just as lost. But that's what started to give him meaning and direction. Yes. And that's why I love he kind of goes back to it in season three. Like like he came back and he he was the assistant assistant to the kit man even. He was even, you know what I mean? Like I love that he didn't come back being like, okay, well, can I be coach again? Right, right. And you know? and I think we see some of that with Kafka in the book, too, because at the very end, he does return to his hometown. But things have changed, yes. you know? Right. The same people aren't around, the same experience. He's changed because his life has taken him on this journey. And that's the journey I see Nate taken, too. And yeah. But also Ted. Ted also goes back. He goes yeah. back to Kansas. Yep. 
you know, there's a, a quote that I pulled from the book and just sort of just sort of pasted in to have it handy in case it came up. And it very much made me think of a, a specific scene with Ted in season three. But looking at it in the context of quotes that apply to both, you can also see it applying to Nate. So uh, the quote is Miss Saiki, and she's talking to Kafka. And she says, a long time ago, I threw away something I shouldn't have, she says. Something I loved more than anything else. I was afraid that someday I'd lose it. So I had to let it go myself. If it was going to be stolen from me, or if I was going to lose it by accident, I decided it was better to discard it myself. Mm -hmm. Of course, I felt anger that didn't fade. That was part of it. But the whole thing was a huge mistake. I should never have thrown it away. And that read to me as such a cautionary tale for the discussion Ted has with his mom about why he's apart from Henry, mm -hmm. right? But you could also, to a lesser extent, I think, apply that to Nate's anger and rage, causing him to sever himself from Richmond uh, in Absolutely. a way that- it was not a good decision for him. It wasn't one he should have made. And, and it was, it was a huge mistake. Yeah. yeah. I also thought about um, the painting, right? The book is called Kafka on the shore. And that's a painting that Masaiki has hanging um, in Kafka's apartment in the, or his room in the library or whatever. Yes. But I think there was something to that because at one point in the book, she says, well, you were there. You're the one who's painted. But like, because time is all wibbly wobbly, wibbly wobbly. Yeah. For, <laughs> <laughs> to use the best the best description of time in this type of book. Uh, yeah. But it, it it gave me these this idea of the. The photo that Ted had of Nate at his home oh. alongside his picture of Henry. Oh, yeah. Right. Because she never left it it was always somewhere that was safe and special to her and other people didn't see it other people didn't know it was there until kafka had the room but that's the same thing like ted had that picture of him and nate in a spot that was even more special to him than his office mm -hmm. yeah ted and nate parallels i love it i love it too Let's pause for a comment from Bohemian Sis. They say the following is a quote from the book and I can't help but wonder if the exceptional Ted Lasso writers team with their highest of aims to produce an outstanding work knew. And the quote is, they were very discerning patrons of the arts, supporting artists with the highest aims who produce the most outstanding works. But as you're surely aware, in the arts there's no such thing as an absolutely perfect eye. Unfortunately, some exceptional artists did not win their favour or were not received by them as they deserved to be. Back to the podcast. So, and um, I'm going to take forward the theme of journey because I want to discuss the besties journey. <laughs> was the most official name I could think to give it. I'm going to first talk about Nakata and some personality traits of Nakata and then Hashino and some personality traits. So what I've picked for Nakata is vulnerable, kind, positive, naive and humble. And for Hashino, Hashino I've picked blasé, apathetic, loyal, introspective and protective. And I want to see if anybody else sees what I see because I see Nakata as Ted and Hashino as Beard. That is awesome because when you said you were doing the parallel, my mind automatically went to the opposite 
matches and I don't know why but as Mm -hmm. soon as you said those adjectives I was like oh no of course that makes I think it could just a couple of points as well the way I was like that I was like wait have I got this the right way around but you know any any story like that can you can apply to it but yeah I was the same I was like oh they could be each other in certain respects but let's see if we can cement it a bit further so when I got we'll do Ted first when I got Ted for vulnerability I put admitting his anxiety to Dr Sharon was like a major sort of vulnerability of Ted's. What about kindness? I mean, there's loads, right, to pick from. That's what's yeah. so hard to pick. With what he did with Te- uh, what he did for Beard, what you know, what yeah. we don't see on screen, but we hear the story about yeah. him taking Beard in, and so it's not just kindness; it's like forgiveness and kindness in a way. Yeah. you know, like yeah. yeah. Is he positive? I don't know. Does he not want to win the whole fucking thing the whole time? So. <laughs> He's, he's definitely maybe a bit toxically positive, but yeah, we can see well, that he's positive. It's yeah, he's absolutely positive. He just there's I don't I'm not even sure how to articulate it, but it's something along the lines of like like Nakata's kindness being just sort of the default. That's just like yeah. because he doesn't know a lot of things. Mm-hmm that's just what he knows makes him feel better so that's how he is and I think that's the connection with Ted yeah yeah and um naivety I haven't actually put anything down for this but he's quite naive Ted right oh there's I think there's definitely something there with it I mean I don't know if he's completely naive but he he lets himself be naive like I think we've talked about kind of how like we get to halfway through season three before he, you realize that he knows what he's talking about with yeah you know what i mean like and there's a little bit of a like a willing like oh i don't you know i don't like kind of i don't even know about this like you know i don't get yeah. it so you know mm-hmm. like he just kind of, you know he goes himbo as a as a defensive response or when he's shocked Sometimes. by things yeah. right it's immediately the stupid joke that pretends he doesn't understand what's going yeah. on when he thought he'd won the woman of the year award from vanity fair that was probably yes the or sam ull jackson right yeah yeah uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but a lot of those are in are very intentional right i, I mean i read yeah. them as intentional oh i read them as intentional too but i, yeah. I do think it is the the feigned obliviousness defensive mechanism Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And humble. I picked eating a hot curry sh- to show respect because I thought that was hubris. Kind thy of name humble. is Ted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the line that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, but like not thinking of his own discomfort, just thinking of the discomfort he could cause someone else. I mean, and that could be a bad thing when in reference to Ted, but just in a smaller scale, that's really sweet. It's just mm-hmm. humble. It's like recognition of like as much as he plays dumb sometimes he also when it comes down to it has recognition for those moments when he really doesn't know and it, and it is more important that he doesn't know yeah or he's not trying to mask with a joke <laughs> yeah points exactly yeah. yeah and it's right and it's almost like that he you know like he's the guy that knows every knows something about everyone in the office that no one else does Just, yeah He's gotten to know every single person, maybe not, not intimately, right? But like he walks by the people in, you know, that live in his laughing Liam. Yeah, it's nice to laugh in Liam, right? And he just kind of like it's like he knows something about everybody, and he that's his connection to everybody. And, and yeah, like somehow he doesn't honor that, or he doesn't think that that's being helpful, or I don't know, I, you know, 
I'm not yeah. sure he thinks about that trait, but it's something he does that's actually makes people feel seen and hurt, you yeah. know, him and yeah. Absolutely. Now for Beard, so we've got Blasey, apathetic, loyal, introspective, and protective, as a reminder. Blasey, I know Beard is Blasey, but I couldn't pick something to sort of show that, if you know what I mean. Like, he's Blasey about the popular things that people enjoy, but he's like really introspective about the things that he enjoys, if that makes sense. Sure. But as for like a Blasey, I suppose Blasey would be after the Man City match where he's just like, fuck it, I'm going on a night out. I don't care what the consequences are tomorrow. So that's an option. Yeah, and I mean, he's very, he has very reserved reactions to most things. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true, actually. That's apart really from fun. like, apart apart from Roy and Keeley splitting up. Yeah. And he does his right. little, <laughs> little gas. He is not blasé about that. No, that makes those moments even funnier, though, because the rest of the time he is a bit like quiet, right? Yeah. Apathetic. I picked well. He's missing, missing some red flags all over the place. So there is a bit of apathy and beard i think in certain situations yeah yeah um yeah i Mm. i i do think it's almost like beard is picking his battles and the things that he doesn't pick are the things that he's just like "Eh, not even gonna really good way to put it actually that is yeah exactly he's passionate about what he's passionate about and everything else can fuck off really that's how you feel that's how I feel about it. Loyalty. Well, I think we can agree that Beard's loyal, considering he's followed Ted. He is now. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't always true. And I that's think that's true. really great. Like getting that insight to like that Beard had to go on his own journey of becoming trustworthy and reliable and part all of, of the that. bestie's journey. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the bestie's journey. Well, and I, I loved it, though, you know, and even, like, at the end there, like, where, I mean, he was going to go back to Kansas with Ted. He was, and he was, like, bawling his eyes out about yeah, it Yeah, that as was well. really sweet. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, introspective. I mean, I couldn't give a better way to describe Beard, really, as introspective. I, I wonder about that, though, because when I think of introspective, I think about him, like, meditating on himself and his own personal growth when i look to his relationship with jane i wonder if he is actually doing that but i think Mm. there are points that you're you're talking about because like when higgins calls him out on that his kind of like uh, uh, reaction is like he does know this but he doesn't want to know it it's just a willful blind spot yeah yeah cognitive dissonance yeah he is protective though like he wanted oh, to headbutt Nate on behalf of Ted when he when he found out what Nate had done. So and he was going to get on a plane to go beat up the bully that got Henry That's before right. he learned that Henry was the bully. <laughs> Brilliant point, because I forgot about that. Yeah, that is probably the best example of how protective beards can be. So with all those personality traits in, in place and Ted, you know, me thinking Ted is in a cast out and beard is Hashino, I thought, well, this their journeys are quite similar. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice to like see if there is a bestie's journey? And I'm, for anybody who doesn't know, I'm ta- I'm taking the piss about it, like not out of it, but using the hero's journey, whereby there is a standard sort of set of rules to a story, and there's the ups and downs and the right positions. And I'm wondering if there is a bestie's journey. So in comparison, Nakata lost his memory and his ability to function in the way that he would like, and Ted lost his ability to maintain harmony in his life and developed an anxiety disorder resulting in panic attacks. 
And Hoshino was in trouble with the police and only got out of that situation with the help of his gramps, who he sort of compares to Nakata. And as we found out in the series finale, Beard was in jail on a drug charge and Ted helped him out of that situation. Now, I know that I'm mixing my sort of um, theories here when I'm saying this, but it's kind of similar to how it is in the book that, yeah, Hoshino sort of only got out of the trouble with the police because of his grandpa. And then with Ted helping Beard out, it's kind of like that wibbly wobbly time thing that Bex was talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's like that a circular whole... sort of. Nakata's a stand in for his grandfather. So that is sort of representative of that same relationship. And it, it dictates how Hoshino interacts with Nakata. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Hoshino decided to put all his faith into Nakata, no matter what, right? No matter what. And in the pilot shooting script, and I'll get Marita to confirm this because I'm paraphrasing, but in the scene on the plane, Beard exclaims, I'll follow you anywhere, coach. But yeah, this is nuts. So that line was cut. So it's either I'll follow you anywhere or I'll do anything for you. But I think it's I follow you anywhere, coach, um, which shows like a similar situation to Hishino and Nakata. So Hishino always sorts the accommodation for Nakata and Beard pointed Ted to his flat in the pilot, which is a silly little one. But, you know, it's just the, the little tiny details that help oh. flesh this out. The beard hmm. takes care of the logistics, it seems, like in a weird oh, way yeah. that you mm-hmm. wouldn't expect him to. He does. The wet wipes, the humidifier, yeah. That's he, he true. Knows, yeah, of course. Ah, oh, see, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm glad you're all here. So Nakata heals Hashino's back, and Ted heals Beard by showing him forgiveness for his past feelings, like Andrea had mentioned earlier. So, like that's the nice thing, the kind thing that um, that Ted's done for Beard. Hashino turns the entrance stone for Nakata at great physical expense. And I liken this to Beard reading all the football books and learning the entire sport just to sort of back Ted up, who doesn't really have he's, a clue what's going on sometimes. He's doing the heavy lifting of the coaching, yes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So those are like really comparative to me in very different ways. But Nakata dies, which, oh, broke me. That was hard. Um, he leaves Hashino behind, but Hashino's different. He's not the same Hashino. He's paying attention in his own life now and helping Nakata help Toshino. And I see this as when Ted flies off leaving Beard in London and Beard feels he can function without Ted, right? He left him a better person because helping Ted, like Toshino helped Nakata, made him a better person. But he couldn't truly fly free until he was alone, right? After Nakata was gone, Hoshino, that's when he could truly grow. That is exactly it. I love it. So it's like the, the seed in the soil or, you know, like something like that. It's a circular journey. But the best is journey in, in, in sort of conclusion, where both stories highlight the ways in how two friends can make each other better people. Like when Ted forgives Beard for showing the team the Nate CCTV right before the match, or how Nakata showed faith in Hoshino when he barely had any faith in himself. How Hoshino protected Nakata. Both have bettered each other in different ways. Everything won't be tied up in a bow because bettering yourself is a marathon and not a sprint. And I think both stories leave us with the understanding that Beard and Hishino will continue to work on themselves. Like this isn't an end of a, a journey. It's just the beginning, really. So the besties journey will end with the pairings parting ways, but as more of a whole person. Uh, you know, what it's giving me it's giving me Samwise and Frodo. Oh, yeah. Uh, Unintentional. Oh. No, it's the but it, journey. It, it does fit in. I when you started talking about it, I was like, oh, it's like uh, the hero's journey. I would 
call the the other side of that coin the sidekick's journey. But the way right. you discussed it is really their their need for one another and that engagement back and forth. That it's not one or the other; it's both. Besties. Yeah, that e- either journey could not have happened if both of them weren't doing what they were doing. If if it was only one of them, it it wasn't going to work. Ted coming here without any knowledge of football and not having beards, he'd have been gone within a week. Do you know? What I mean? So yes. Beard's not, you know, if Ted wasn't getting a job and taking him along with him, Beard wouldn't have had that job in the first place. So, yeah, it's, it's that I bet there is actually something that's like really literary that actually is just the bestie's journey that I've just made up for a bit of a laugh. And there's probably an actual <laughs> trope for it, but yeah. I never thought I love of the it. Samwise and Frodo thing. That's oh. made me real happy. Well, Samwise and Frodo, Don Quixote and Sancho. Like, it really is this besties, this pairing that, like, they each need one another. So, sorry, Isn't Andrea. that kind of... Oh, no, no, you're fine. I was say, isn't that kind of what the found family trope is, which I freaking love? when the crime's involved. When it's, a, when it's found family and it's a bunch of people in space and they're, like doing heists and stuff that's like my happy it's hella specific it's almost like you were talking about one exact program there six crows six of crows (laughs) um i love that book but anyway no but uh firefly is that yeah i was about to say like there's a lot of a lot of stories like that when it and it is that it is it's a there's part hero journey but part it's these people who find themselves together in you know because of a million different reasons and none of them really have a home anywhere right they don't you know some of them have connections to home some of them don't yeah. find this family together and they they have to they have to they have to figure things out together they have to do things together and oh it's I, my like favorite that. sitcom trope yeah like fine family sitcoms are always the best in my opinion it's the yeah. best trope and i think and it's because everybody always. wants to see themselves as finding their people right as yeah. they're yeah. coming across and like we have like we, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all just said that <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're so cringe and i love it but richmond is essentially a found family even though like they're not quite so uh detached from their families not everybody but some of them are and they but, found each other. It's a found family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of Absolutely. them it's ge- geographically speaking, just by default, right? Um, some of them it is that, you know, t- a toxic relationship, which, you know, we do see Jamie starting to repair at the end. But I don't think he'd ever have been in a place to begin that journey with his own father if he hadn't had the journey with his found family. Yeah, that that's, a, again, it's like, two golden hands you know they're pulling the story forward together that's how i sort of yeah and and honestly not everyone's stories actively overlap and yet they impact one another and i think that's another thing we see in kafka on the shore right nakata and kafka never meet right they they, i don't think no i don't think so they don't no no yeah he's not there Exactly. That's it. Because he's at the cabin at that point. Right. And so they never meet, but their stories are intrinsically like interconnected to to one another. And that's true. I mean, May and the pub lads don't meet most of the the other people. I mean, sure, May has more interactions with them because of the 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 time when the whole team is there. But even that's a very minimal interaction with them. And so yeah, there's there's this bit where like found family has branches just like 
a, a biological family might have branches, right? And you're closer to some sides and some individuals and some factions more than others. Mm-hmm. Yes, I just use factions to describe families. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Game of Thrones. Depends on the family. Kind of like, that was a family and these had factions. So. <laughs> And let's pause for our last comment from Bohemian Sis. And just like in Ted Lasso, lightning was a key figure in Kafka on the shore. It comes out of nowhere and strikes where and who it will with no rhyme or reason. Whether literally or metaphorically, it's sometimes deadly or sometimes exuberating, but always brilliant. It doesn't give us the luxury of getting to know it ahead of time because it just strikes. Strike being the very definition of its nature. And that's how both the book and the series ended with several lightning bolts striking everyone everywhere and when it was over, every character was transformed for better or worse. And it was a wonderful surprise or an upsetting shock or maybe even a little of both, depending on each of our own imperfect eyes. Thank you so much to Bohemian Sis for providing these wonderful comments and if you'd like to join in in the fun, send us a tweet at Beards Book Club or email us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. So I don't know if this will actually go anywhere. So we can cut this whole part out. Um, I just wanted to see what you all thought of this. So one thread, and and there's papers discussing this, that I didn't follow when I was uh, reading Kafka on the Shore, at least I didn't dig too deep, was sort of there's there's an implicit critique of imperialism and, and sort of capitalism in the book, right? That otherworldly being that sort of shows up and embodies whatever direction fate needs to take is always an American marketing figure, right? It's Johnny Walker. It's wait, Colonel is Sanders. Or is it American whiskey? No, no, it's, it's Scott. It's uh, Meteor. Okay. Johnny Walker. Right. Yeah. It's so, so let's cut that American, American, but it's always a marketing figure. It's always based in, in capitalism, right? We've got Johnny Walker. We've got uh, Colonel Sanders. So that's that's kind of an interesting. Whenever fate steps in in the book, it's it's in the form of of something you'd see in a commercial, and I, I'm not quite sure where to go with that. But I thought it was interesting. But I also think it's interesting how there's this contrast between Toshino and and Nakata, in that Nakata is so, and he's dependent on his subsidy, right, on on the money he gets for being disabled, but above what he needs for his basics he has no conception of money like a lot of money or like a ridiculous amount of money are all the same to him when he loses his investments he has no sense of what's gone mm-hmm. but then you have Hoshino and he is so sort of bought into this system of consumerism like when he wants to become anonymous and not recognizable by the police right he loses his affiliation he loses his dragon's baseball cap right and he loses his aloha shirt and that's like his whole identity right he is now faceless and anonymous once he's lost these things uh, and I, I think there's an interesting critique in there that I'm just not quite grabbing at but I also think it's kind of interesting with with the pub lads because early on I mean they're just flat out hooligans right and their entire identity is Richmond football fans but as we go on, especially in season three, even when we get these tiny little glimpses, we get glimpses of them as having other components to their identity. You know, Jeremy gets a job, right? Baz has that friend who sort of is a West Ham fan and starts to come into the pub and immediately gets like, you know, thrown out. But we start to see different bits of that um, 
as defining their identity instead of just that one consumerist sort of uh, marker of their identity, which is the Richmond jersey or the Richmond scarf or, or their mm. rabbit harassment of the coach. It was an interesting line of thought, I thought. I, I there's, there's... No, it is because there's clearly a comment there, right? There's a comment about capitalism or, or of some sort if, if the sort of magical stuff is centred around it, you know? Is it right on the nose, you know, where it's just like people will believe and buy things from adverts that they see on the telly and that's why they've picked those those sort of things, but I'm not sure. Well, I think if it was that, I, th- I think it, if it was purely just on consumerism, especially because Murakami, you know, I, I, I feel like that would be Japanese brands. Like they have their own. Yeah. The, yeah, the, but Colonel Sanders Western. is big in Japan because they have it for Christmas Day. They so have, they have, they have they? KFC for Christmas Day. In I'd Japan. rather they had Johnny Walker. Yeah, I but think it's something I, 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 to do with a marketing campaign like years and years ago, and now it's just became a tradition, and it's wow. a tradition in Japan to get like. No, f- fair enough, but there's, I think there's a comment to be made there too, because it's very Western encroachment yeah. on culture, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, also, I, don't I think know Johnny Walker this. is a popular Scotch in Japan. Probably. I mean, it would make sense. It's a popular Scotch everywhere, isn't it? It's yeah, one of the better everywhere. known brands. I, I've oh, got a bottle of Jane Walker. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it, it, there is something interesting there, and there is something about um, your identity around what you buy. Like, I mean, obviously, I, I'm about to talk about Americans here, but like, there is a whole culture around if you're Android or Apple or if you're this or that, right? Like, Jason Sudeikis and his Nikes, yes, right, his Jordans. Right. And I feel yeah. like, and I, I almost feel like that's like we we all, in our own ways put people in those boxes ourselves right like we look at them and we see them in like yes you just said the nikes like i feel like if if he came out on with a pair of adidas i think some people would lose their shit over it <laughs> right and it's like yes <laughs> i'm here for it. jason sudeikis please just wear some adidas or new balance one time and we want to see the picture and then we'll know that you listen <laughs> it's adidas by the way yeah it's Adidas. Yeah. <laughs> you and your Scottish pronunciations, Adidas. Shout out to Nikes of Lasso. I would never hurt you. No, no, no. <laughs> and your beautiful drawings. <laughs> oh, they are gorgeous, though. Yeah. Uh, I want so many of them. I don't know if I'm really getting at a good point here, other than just you did hit on something. I think I would need to think it through exactly like how it relates to like the book and everything you're saying, but like mm-hmm. there is definitely something there and just something about, we expect, we we really put people in boxes of, for everything they do. Everyone goes into a box of some kind. Right. Um, and almost we're all almost frowned upon to go outside of that box. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, but then there is sort of that like pushing back against the box. I love that. Oh, completely. Like the strings I mean, that bind us, or I mean, like there's a whole <laughs> thing here in Chicago that drives me. I'm about to. You're. I'm going on a tangent. People in Chicago are obsessed with the fact that we have two baseball teams, and one team's on the south side of Chicago, and one team's on the north side of Chicago, and you are supposed to pick your team. You pick your team, and you do not cross. Yeah, we have that issue in New York with like every small. <laughs> Don't John Wings night this bullshit. It's a whole ass one thing. Yes, your your identity is based on that. 
Yeah, and people get upset. People get angry if you do not pick your team. And I just say, I was born in, I was born in the South Side. I've lived in the North Side. I do not have a team. I love my city because I've lived all over my city and I love both teams. And people get mad at me. Mad. Mm. Well, Oregon, it's that way with the, the sports team because there's two big universities, right? There's Oregon State and there's University of Oregon. And oh man, people get weird about it. But anyway, so me throwing that out there was kind of a half-baked idea, but it is really interesting that he's got the identity signifiers being so consumerist with Hoshino and so opposite of whatever that is with Nakata in a book that is so much about Kafka trying to forge his identity from the shattered pieces that he has. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to, it's going to, I'm going to want to think about that because it's definitely got to have something with like American imports that are big in Japan. Yeah. So you know what I mean? So it's not not just a capitalist thing, it's like an American imports. Ah, well, the, and especially the, the parts of the story that are sort of based on uh, the history where people would have experienced the American occupation of Japan. Yes. And of like course. Hoshino doesn't believe that happened, right? He's like, no, that they were never here, right? There's a little throwaway line that he's like, no, I don't think so. Uh that like complete ignorance of history that has clearly impacted so much of his life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It is hmm. interesting. Oh, I enjoyed that. That was a really so much good to think about. <laughs> I had one Ooh. last quote that I liked, and I don't know if it's anything, but um, I just wanted to share it. It's Oshima again to Kafka, and he says, "There's only one kind of happiness, but misfortune comes in all shapes and sizes. It's like Tolstoy said: happiness is an allegory, unhappiness is a story." And I just it kind of made me curious about applying that to Ted Lasso because there are moments of happiness and moments of unhappiness and when is it a story and when is it allegory and I'm, I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily looking for a concrete answer on that I just wanted to put it out into the universe well, that's interesting. well listeners can always come and let us know on Twitter at Beards well, as well and you know it's like Ted is trying to live his life like allegory when really there's a whole story going on he's not acknowledging I like that. I like that. I'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that answer. Um, our next book is going to be soccer or football against the enemy, depending on what country you're in by Simon, possibly Cooper or Cooper. Is it K-U-P-E-R? There's, there's yeah. one P it's Cooper. Cooper. Okay. We're oh, all right. Okay. Cooper, Cooper. Cooper. Soccer against the enemy or football against the enemy, depending on where you're buying the book. I think it's football against the enemy first, and um, then it's maybe soccer. soccer against... no, no. Maybe football. <laughs> now, football now. <laughs> it was football first. It was redone as soccer for the stupid Americans. <laughs> we'll always need title changes in all yeah. our books, apparently. <laughs> I love when Adam was on. You were all like trying your best to say football, and now that Adam's not here, you're just back to yeah, like, totally. We're throwing that away. We have no like, man with that. We've got nobody to impress in here. It's soccer. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that. Um, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Greyhounds, for joining us today. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.